The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning. It's good to gather together together again on this Sunday morning. Glad you've joined for worship. I've been at Bethlehem since 2008. And the first six years on staff with Campus Outreach Student College Ministry in the last seven and a half eight years as a pastor for small groups. And all 14 of those years, small groups have been a priority in this church. When I first came, John Piper was the, the pastor for Preaching and Vision. And at that time, there's a small group sermon every fall and every January. Uh, a call to what small group is and to participation uh, in that. Um, this form of cadence is probably a reason why Pastor Kenny asked me to preach on small groups today. But that is a question, why were small groups a priority then and why are small groups a priority now? What are small groups and how will we move toward them together? How will we move toward discipling relationships in any form together in this church? Those three questions are the outline for my sermon this morning. The why, the what, and the how of small groups and discipling relationships. The first two, the why and the what, will be brief, like appetizers, setting the stage for the how and our text from Ephesians, which will be our main course. So I will be a waiter for a three-course meal for us this morning. And the first is our appetizer, why? Why small groups? At Bethlehem, we know that weekend worship is essential for living the Christian life and that weekend worship alone is insufficient. Christianity is more than this weekend gathering. It's a belief that enters into every area of our life and we need to help each other live it. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 tells us to exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Two elements in that text to highlight. Exhort one another. And Pastor Ken talked about it a bit and is welcome. We are to be doing this with each other. Having the kind of relationships where we are truly known and truly know others and we're doing intentional spiritual good for each other. That's Mark Dever's definition of discipleship in his book, Discipling, doing intentional spiritual good for others. So discipleship doesn't have spectators. It's something that we're all participating in together as the body. We're called to help each other spiritually, one another. The second thing to highlight is every day. We need an everyday-like kind of involvement with each other in this church. Sin is sneaky. We are prone to wander. We need to help each other grow and live out our faith in what Jeff Vanderstelt calls the everyday stuff of life. Everyday life kind of involvement with each other. Another way to say it, is in our discipleship, we need not only rows, we also need circles. Not just rows, but circles. We should ha- it should happen in rows, shoulder to shoulder, in, in the pews, 
hearing the word preached, hearing teaching. We need to have rows for our discipleship. And we need circles facing each other, building each other up in love, as it says in Ephesians 4 that Damien recited for us. Since we are called, called to gather corporately, we provide structure to help us live this out fruitfully. Sunday mornings we have the welcome, the prayer of praise, the pastoral prayer, songs, various elements. And since we're called to build each other up in love and the everyday stuff of life, we also want to provide structure to help us live that out in a fruitful way when we leave this building on Sunday mornings. Small groups are a priority structure for discipling relationships in our church. It's for men and women, young and old, married and single, families with kids, without kids, all ethnicities and races and socioeconomic backgrounds. It's a place for the church to come together and for spiritual grandmothers and grandfathers, spiritual fathers and mothers, spiritual children, brothers and sisters to come together and live out Christian family life together in Jesus' name. But what exactly does this look like? What do small groups do? Well, let me serve up appetizer number two this morning. The what of small group. Small groups at Bethlehem, we have a statement, a vision, an aim that we hope to accomplish in small group life. And that statement has an illustration with it. Um, so I'll kind of draw in the air the illustration a bit while I say this. What are small groups seeking to do? And small groups seek to do this. We're pursuing gospel maturity. We have some concentric circles here. Gospel maturity in gospel community, leading the gospel mission to multiply in our church and serve our Twin Cities. Pursuing maturity in community, leading the mission and multiplying in those concentric circles, that middle circle, community. Community exists to press in to help us keep growing in maturity. And community exists to press out to be on mission together. To keep believing in the gospel and spreading that belief to others. And we love it when these little small group families multiply and start new small group families but grow up into a maturity and start their own. There's a, a small group family tree with branches off of it. And doing all of it involved with this body and serving our Twin Cities. So there's the aim. So we hope the Lord does in our small group life together. And we have three main practices to cultivate that aim. Three main things that we lead uh, train leaders in that we do in our small, gr- small group life. And we call that family time, DNA time, and missional effort. Family time, it's time for men and women and the kids. We're all together. Often there's a meal. Brothers and sisters in Christ partnering in this discipleship endeavor together. Maybe there's a Bible study. Maybe we're doing sermon discussion in our small group, every other week is family time. And every other week, what we call DNA time. Just men, just women, in smaller groups of 
three or four to go a little bit deeper into life stuff. Share things that might be more uncomfortable in the mixed gender environment. And then missional effort. Seeking to help each other to love in word and deed our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, our friends that don't yet know Jesus. Family time, DNA time, and missional effort. Living as a family of God together. Well, now we've nibbled a little bit on the two little appetizers of why and what. We have our focus this morning on the how. The how of small group life. The how of discipling relationships. How will we move toward small group? Or how will we move toward discipling relationships in any form in this church? There's a technical answer to that question. And there's a heart answer to that question. The technical answer is easy. Go to Group Connect. Go meet some people. Meet people and ask if they're in a small group. Ask to join. If you're in a small group, meet people. Ask them to join your, your small group. The heart answer is more complicated. Relationships are hard. It's for a good reason. There's a book with the title Relationships. A Mess Worth Making. Maybe you've read that book. We all have had bad experiences. There are people that have an immense presence in our lives. Parents, teachers, coaches, pastors, friends, co-workers, bosses, our spouse, neighbors. And sometimes that immensity has been wielded in ways that have blessed us and built us up. And sometimes that immensity has been used in ways that tore us down and were not a blessing. We also have an immensity in the lives of others. We are big in their eyes, and at times we have blessed. And at times we have been the ones that have torn down. How will we move toward the hard work of personal discipleship in each other's lives when this is the backdrop? Many of us have fears and insecurities to overcome. We have hesitations. I think it's good if we start by embracing two things. Embracing two things. One, expect the mess. Number one is expect the mess. The only love we can give and receive in this church is going to be a flawed and painful love. Until we live in the new heavens and new earth, it's going to be hard. At points, we're going to get hurt. We're going to be disappointed, forgotten, misunderstood. At points, we are going to be the ones who hurt others, who disappoint, who forget, who misunderstand. In this church, you are only going to step into flawed relationships and flawed small groups as the flawed person that you are. In this church, you're only going to step into flawed relationships and flawed small groups as the flawed person that you are. We sin. Christianity is a lifestyle of repentance. Failing and forgiving are a normal feature of Christianity. You are flawed. And if we ended there, 
that would be pretty discouraging. You are flawed, but you are loved. You are flawed, but you are loved. Embrace the second thing. Expect mess, but also expect grace. Expect grace. We can walk in the flawed love in this church because we have received a flawless love that will never let us down, that will always give us the power that we need. Christianity is not only a lifestyle of repentance. Christianity is a lifestyle of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith in the one who loved us. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son who loved me and gave himself for me. We live our life here and now in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me. We live by love. The title of the sermon is Loved and Loving. Loved and Loving. The only way you are going to step into a small group or stick with a small group, the only way you're going to have any kind of relational involvement in this church or anywhere else is if you continually receive, remember, live in the light of the love that God has for you in Christ. You will love to the extent you know you are loved. You will love to the extent that you know you are loved. And this love that you need ultimately cannot come from those people in the pew that you're sitting next to. Think again on those people that are an immense presence in your life. Parent, spouse, boss, pastor, coworker, friend. No matter how good they may have been, they cannot deliver what you need. If you expect them to satisfy your craving for divine love, you will crush them under the weight of your idolatry. You will crush them. And no matter how bad they have been, they don't have the power to steal the love that God has given you. Romans 8, 35-39 that text was a long list of terrible things and none of them can separate you from God's love. No tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword will separate you from God's love. The next list in that text has both bad things and good things that can't separate you from God's love. Neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, no powers, no heights, no depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is the immense presence that doesn't cringe at us, doesn't wear a stoic face of indifference toward us. He looks on us with eyes that are brimming with happy invitation. Even when our sin grieves him, 
Even when he disciplines us, his dominant posture toward us is loving delight. He only and always has loving delight in the Son, Jesus. And by grace through faith in him, we have this righteousness of the Son that the Father delights in. So his dominant posture toward us is loving delight. Clothed in the righteousness from Christ, we are always covered in these happy, exuberant words from the Father, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That applies to the daughters in the room as well. The Puritan John Owen said, God's greatest desire is that you should receive him into your soul as one full of love, tenderness, and kindness to you. We are apt to think hard thoughts of God. He's always angry. There's nothing more grievous to the Lord than such thoughts as these. As Ken said earlier, God's wrath was satisfied. It's gone. And what's left is loving delight. What does it mean that God is full of love? And what are the effects when we receive this and live in light of it? My aim the rest of this sermon is to draw out some of the relational promise of the gospel and the hopes it would empower you to step into relationships in this church. And if you're already in relationships in this church, you will lean in more deeply into those relationships. Let's look at Ephesians 3. Now we'll go to our text. Ephesians 3. Our passage today begins and ends with God. It's a prayer to God to know the love of God, to receive the fullness of God, for the glory of God. Those four things. It's a prayer to God to know the love of God, to receive the fullness of God for the glory of God. A prayer to God, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father. And in verse 19, it says, he may grant. He's asking. He's asking for something. I was asking for is knowing love and being filled. Verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God and for the glory of God. Look at verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Zooming in a bit more closely, what Paul is asking for here, he's asking for empowerment. Look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner beings that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Strengthened with power in your inner being, a result of that Christ dwell in our hearts through faith, but empowerment to do what? Strength for what? Verse 17, second part. That you may be rooted and grounded in love and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is Paul's request. For those that are rooted in the love of God to know the vast dimensions of the love that they're rooted in. 
Now, they wouldn't just be rooted in love, but they would comprehend. They'd comprehend the love that they are rooted in. He's praying for a consciousness. He's praying for a deep awareness. And when that consciousness, when that deep awareness happens, when it comes, what's the effect? What's the radical effect of being conscious of this radical love? Is being filled with all the fullness of God. Not all fullnesses feel good. I've had a fullness from Big Macs and French fries that did not feel good. I don't want that. But the consciousness of a divine love that fills me with a divine fullness, I want that. I want that. Imagine if you go into your quest for a small group, if you go into your quest for any kind of connection with people in this church with a sense of the relational fullness you already have, rather than a sense of emptiness and scarcity. So God fills you with his fullness by filling you with a love consciousness. As the Mandalorians say in Star Wars, this is the way. That was for my boys. Actually, that was for me. I like the two. That's a fun show. We are filled by the fullness of God through comprehension of the love of God. We can't meditate on this love too much. How is it comprehended? How does this happen? The text in Ephesians says something interesting. It's through knowing the unknowable love. Verse 19. To know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. To know what we can't know. Our natural faculties of thinking and understanding are involved, but they are insufficient. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 15. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. How is this comprehended? It's not a mindless trance on the one hand. It's really true comprehension. Nor a sheer act of naked intellect or biological brain function on the other. It's thinking in the spirit. Thinking in the spirit. A spiritual consciousness. The spirit must do a mysterious work through our understanding to make the love of God palpable to us so we are changed by it, filled by it. We cannot control that. We can ask for it, take hold of those things the Spirit tends to, use, tends to use to do such a work when the Spirit chooses to do His work. So here we will consider what love actually is in the hope the Spirit will choose to illuminate and warm hearts and this love become palpable. So our question, what is love? What is love? John Frame is a retired seminary professor. uses a teaching framework that sees life through three perspectives. Think of them as three points in a triangle. The normative perspective, 
top point of the triangle. Uh, existential, that's kind of a big nerd word. Existential, personal, inner life. Normative, existential, situational. And looking at the world through these perspectives helps us from being overly reductionistic as we pursue truth and help each other. For example, what is discipleship? Discipleship is taking the truth of the Bible and the gospel, normative, and applying it to specific people in specific situations. Healthy discipleship means we need to know the truth of what is the Bible and the gospel, who is this person, what are their circumstances, and let's fit all that together and walk in wisdom and love in our discipleship. Three perspectives. What is love? Love is at least three things. We'll go back to our triangle. Love is allegiance, normative. Love is affection, existential. And love is action, situational. Allegiance, love is a commitment. It's a promise. It's a covenant. Affection, love is emotional warmth, joy, happiness. Action, love is deeds of service, taking care of each other. We get into problems when we reduce love into being one of these things. And maybe our culture today might reduce love to a feeling, affection. I have fallen out of love with you. It's over. I don't feel the warmth anymore. I'm gone. Or maybe we reduce it to covenant and to promise. Of course I love you. I'm here, aren't I? I'm committed. I don't, you know those warm fuzzies? I don't think I'm here. Imagine there is a coin in the middle of this triangle allegiance, affection, action. For human beings, the coin is constantly moving. We are not consistent in our commitment. We're not consistent in our warmth. We're not consistent in our serving. But God is different. With God, we can't put a coin in the middle of the triangle right there. God's love isn't a balance of these three. He's a constant overflowing of these three. God is always fully committed, fully affectionate, fully serving all the time. He's more than full. He is overflowing. Love that is infinite is a love that we will not get to the edge of. We will not get to the bottom of it. It's an ocean without shore. Without floor, there's enough of it that we will happily probe into its excellencies for all eternity and never exhaust it. God satisfies us. He satisfies us because his beauty and his love is a spring that never runs dry. There's always more of him to enjoy. Always more of him to enjoy. As C.S. Lewis has put it, it's a further up, further in, further up, further in, forever. It keeps getting better and better. That is glorious and very abstract. 
Let's look at love more concretely. What is a father's love and what is adoptive love? Adoptive love, adoption, having God as our dad, that's a core glory of the gospel and it's a core glory that's in our text. Verse 14, in chapter 3, Paul says he bows his knees before the father. He's engaging God as his dad. The fatherhood of God is in earlier texts in Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. 2, verse 18. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access to the Father. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Through Christ, we have children's rights with God. God is our dad. What are these spiritual rights? The rights of a child as God's child. Tim Keller lists three Three realities that are true of our relationship with God as our father, as our dad. And those three things are he's assumed all of our debts, has given us an inheritance, and we have a new relationship with him. He's assumed all of our debts. We are debt-free. Debts will never come back to haunt us. They are gone. Future is secure. Your future is bright. You have hope as a child of God. And three, a new relationship with him. Our dad is radically committed to us, allegiance. Our dad is radically warm and happy toward us, affection. And he radically serves us, seen most clearly at the cross. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Action. Being debt-free, looking at a secure future, those are great. But the core joy of our salvation, what we want most in life, what we most crave, is the relationship of delight between us and God, between us and and dad. Paul Oster, as a poet, a novelist, I don't believe he's a Christian, I don't know. But in the first part of one of his books, The Invention of Solitude, there's a memoir of his father who had passed away. And his father was largely absent in his life. And what he wrote about this, this absence, highlights the father craving I'm talking about here. Listen to what Paul says. It was not that I felt he disliked me. It was just that he seemed distracted, unable to look in my direction. And more than anything else, I wanted him to take notice of me. Anything, even the least thing, was enough. How, for example, when the family once went to a crowded restaurant on a Sunday and we had to wait for our table, my father took me outside, produced a tennis ball from where I don't know, put a penny on the sidewalk, and proceeded to play a game with me, hit the penny with the tennis ball. 
I could not have been more than eight or nine years old. In retrospect, nothing could have been more trivial. And yet, the fact that I had been included, that my father had casually asked me to share his boredom with him, nearly crushed me with happiness. We are all longing for this. We are longing for someone to say, I see you. I know you. I want you. You belong here with me. We are longing for belonging, but not just from anyone. We want esteem from those we esteem. We want to be included by those who are immense in our eyes. Kate D. Camillo, the accomplished author of children's books and resident of Minneapolis, one of Minneapolis's own, Kate D. Camillo, said there's nothing sweeter in this sad world than the sound of someone you love calling your name. Nothing is sweeter than knowing the one that we want most wants us. The one that we want most wants us. And in Christ, we have this in such a unique and satisfying way. God wanted us before we wanted him. We despised him as an enemy. We were muddied and rank with sin, but he came running after us. He adopted us. No one is more immense than God. In Christ, the personal divine immensity, the one who Paul bows his knees before, is also our dad who brings us near. And our dad is always paying attention to us in ways that if we knew it, it would crush us with happiness. There would be nothing else that would have to go our way. No one else would have to invite us to join them in anything to be okay. So you will be as free to love as much as you receive your childness and God's loving fatherness of you. Your sense of security will rise as you see yourself as a little one that is brought into the tender, pure, generous, righteous, paternal immensity of your Father that will never let you go. That is faith like a child. To be clear, we are not the center of God's affections. We are not at the center. For God to have us at the center of his affections would be idolatrous. We are not God to God. He is God to us. We are not at the center of his affections. He ought to be center of ours. Among his creation, we are at the top of his list of delights. Turn to Isaiah 62. We'll end here. Go to Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5. It says this. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Satan wants you to believe that you are irredeemably lost. You are irredeemably alone, barren, the apple of no one's eye, a source of disgust 
and contempt. He wants you to believe that no one would ever want to adopt you. No one would ever want to marry you. You were these things. You were forsaken. You were desolate. But you are no longer. God has given you a new name, a new status, a new identity. Forsaken and desolate has become my delight is in her. A few years ago, my family went to um, Valley Fair for the first time. It was a lot of fun. Had a blast. And uh, there was a man standing in line for a ride. And he was wearing a t-shirt. And in bold letters on the front of his t-shirt, it said, Debt Paid. And there was like a church logo. And I saw that and I was moved. That's me. I'm free. And the gospel does that, but the gospel does more than that. The gospel does more than free us from a bondage to sin. It frees us to a happy belonging to God. So I'd modify that. I'd add to that shirt. Debt paid on the front. My father's delight on the back. In Christ, you stand in a place of relational richness and abundance. From the safety and security of the flawless love that you have from your Father, you have the power you need to step into relationships here in this church. Messy but worthwhile discipleship. Step into small group life or lean in more deeply if you are in one. If you can't get into a group, Get into discipling relationships in any form. And bless each other in Jesus' name. All the love you receive from your Father. Let's pray. What kind of love has a Father lavished on us that we, desolate and forsaken, should be called the children of God? And so we are. Would that truth not be cliché? not skim the surface of our hearts, but by your Spirit, would it probe into the depth, would it drill deep into our heart and affect us for the truth that it is. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.